the, uh, the message, unfortunately, or fortunately, you know, sometimes I feel like the Lord just uh, saves you from yourself. Yesterday afternoon, for whatever reason, I just had this thought. Normally, the evening before speaking, I kind of finalize my thoughts and print things off from the computer. And for whatever reason, at 2 o'clock yesterday, I sat down and said, you know, I'm just going to bang this out right now and print this off. And thankfully, I have notes because of it, because I certainly wouldn't, uh, wouldn't have them otherwise. But uh, no, it is great to be here. Thank you for everyone who made the effort to come. Uh, I'm sure it's worth acknowledging that uh, it was quite an event over the last 24 hours, and I'm sure impacting uh, many of you in, in uh, hopefully not too severe ways. But grateful that you're here, and uh, hopefully the Lord can speak to us this morning through his word. If you have a Bible with you, I'll invite you, as shown up there on the screen, to turn to Matthew 14. I'll try to give a little bit of a recap as to where we're at in this study as we we work through. But while you're turning there, we're just going to pause and pray and ask the Lord to give us good understanding of his word this morning. Father God, we we are grateful for the opportunity to be here, uh, that the lights could be on, that we can be in a comfortable building, that we have your word in a language that we can understand. And uh, this hour before us now, we will never get again. And so I pray it would be effective in our hearts and in our lives. Lord, only you know what each of us need to hear. And so I pray that you would pick that up off the page of your word and apply it deeply to our minds and our hearts today. May the Holy Spirit be our teacher, guide our words, guard us from distraction, O Lord. The enemy would want us to be thinking about anything but the Lord Jesus and your word. And so we pray for that help. Uh, In the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus, amen. So in Matthew 14, I have a title up there on the screen, I guess keep forgetting we have a screen at the back now, so there you go. Uh, A guilty conscience, a mighty feast, and a miraculous walk. I kind of break up this chapter into three phases. And so the first of them, um, beginning at the start of the chapter, if I just read, if you found it there, Matthew 14, verse 1, it says, at that time, is how it begins, at that time, which obviously begs the question, well, what time is that, Matthew? If you have been following along with us in these studies, um, great. And if not, uh, the quick bit of a recap, a few chapters back in Matthew chapter 10, the Lord Jesus actually said he called together his 12 disciples, those followers who were with him. He called them together and it says this, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal all manner of sickness. And essentially he took his 12, he said, I'm giving you a special ability, go out with my word through all the countryside, preach the message, and I'm giving you power to perform some of these miracles, to authenticate the message, to show that this is coming from God. So that was in Matthew 10. Then at the start of Matthew 11, it says, it came to pass when Jesus made an end of commanding his 12 disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach. So in Matthew 10, sent out the 12. Then in Matthew 11, 12, 13, the last few weeks as we've been enjoying together, it's the Lord Jesus that focuses on him and on his teaching. Well, now in Matthew 14, the 12 have come back. They've returned from their their mission trip, if you will, and we're about to find out how effective that was. And so uh, one of the, uh, we're not told exactly like every single sermon and message and visit they had along the way, but we are told this. We were given an indication of the effectiveness of their ministry through the eyes of one man, Herod. Now, Herod Antipas is the, the boss, if you will. He's the ruler of Galilee. And so the the scriptures choose to focus on him. And and we could surmise if the leader of the area knows all about what's going on in these 12 people and messages of going and miracles, he knows something important is going on, we can take, if nothing else, that certainly their trip was effective. It it caught the the ear, 
remember, no, no social media, it's a totally different age. For, for messages to go, it's word of mouth and word of mouth to a great distance all the way to the top. He's heard about it and he's like, wow, something's going on here. So uh, obviously their, their trip was very effective. Now, I put there at the bottom of the slide, I'm actually going to read from Luke's gospel at the start. You can stay in Matthew if you like. There's four of these gospel books in your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Four different individuals who wrote about the life, historically, what happened of the Lord Jesus. And there's sometimes where incidents happen where all four of them wrote about it, and sometimes they, they fill in the blanks for us. So this is one of those ones where in Matthew 14, Mark 6, Luke 9, and John 6, they cover kind of the same period of time. And so I found it very helpful for me to kind of consider them as a whole so we would understand not just what's written in Matthew 14, but actually what happened here. So let me read the overview. Luke 9 says this. They departed and went through the towns, that's the 12 that we talked about, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod, the Tetrarch, heard of all that was done. He was perplexed. Because it was said by some that John, the Baptist, had risen from the dead. And of some that Elijah had appeared, and of others that one of the old prophets was risen again. And Herod said, John have I beheaded, but who is this of whom I hear such things? He desired to see him. And the apostles, when they returned, told him, that is Jesus, all that they had done. And he took them and went aside privately. So there is, in a handful of verses, the summary of what happened. Remember Matthew 10, he sent them out. They preached, they taught, they did amazing miracles, so much so that even the leader of the land heard about it. And he, it's got him thinking, like, like, who's doing this? He doesn't know Jesus from Adam at that point, but he knows that something amazing's happened, and the first thought in his heart is, well, maybe it's John, John the Baptist. Well, why would he think that? He says, well, I beheaded him. Well, what's that story about? And uh, they come back, and then they're, they're meeting with Jesus. So thankfully, in Matthew and Mark, they, they dive down a bit deeper on that narrative about, well, what is this John the Baptist? Why does Herod think this might be some dead guy doing all of this work and ministry in the land? So a reason I read from Luke is it can be a bit confusing because as we, we're in Matthew 14 here, it actually does a bit of a flashback. So it's continuing, and then we look back at something that happened six months to a year earlier. And so let's, let's read that together. Why would he immediately think, boy, that must be John? When people are dead, they're, they're usually yeah. dead. To me, what I read from this is Herod has a guilty conscience. If you've ever had a conscience, I know you say, what is a conscience? I think the best definition, perhaps, is just an inner awareness. It's that awareness you have on the inside, and sometimes your conscience can be on your side. Maybe you're convicted of something, people accuse you of something. You know you didn't do that. You have what we might say a clear conscience. I know I did the right thing. Sometimes it's the flip side, that you know you were guilty. You know you're wrong. You feel bad about it. You're trying to cover it up. Maybe you're just steam or something, but you know on the inside it's wrong. What is it that's telling you? It's not as Hollywood would say to some character on your shoulder whispering in your ear. It's your God-given conscience that knows right from wrong, that God has given to each of us. And so we know these things that are wrong. And Herod knew it was wrong to kill an innocent man. It says for the sake of the oath. It's crazy to think he wasn't willing to bend this oath made while he was totally drunk at this party about killing someone's life, but he doesn't have a problem taking someone's innocent life. Like, it is, where is his morals at? It, it's all jumbled up. It makes no sense. But here's a man who perhaps weeks and months later convinced himself, well, you know what? It's okay. It's not that bad. All of a sudden, he hears about all these amazing things going on in the land. He says, I don't know anyone 
who could do things like that except John. And he goes to the amazing conclusion, it must be him back from the dead. That tells you how deeply wounded his conscience was. Now, when you have a wounded conscience or something, and maybe even this morning, God is speaking to you about something that you know is wrong and you have to make right, it is a sign that we need an audience either with an individual, if we have offended someone, to ask for forgiveness. But first and foremost, is an audience with God. All sin is against God. We need to ask him for that forgiveness. And Herod needed to do that as well. He wanted to see Jesus. It's actually, his, his wish was met years later on. See, Herod was in charge of Galilee. Pilate, who was another man who was in charge, you may have heard of that name at these times, he was in charge of the Judea region. He was Roman. And Herod and Pilate hated each other until Jesus was arrested. It says then they were made friends. They had a common enemy. Uh, in fact, Herod got an audience in Luke 23 with Jesus at one point. Finally, years later, he got to meet him. And Herod is the only man in all of the scriptures whom, after being addressed to the question, Jesus answered him not one word. It says that in the scripture, he didn't answer a word. There's other people where someone asked the Lord a question, but then he replied eventually. He may have given them a bit of silence so they could think. In scriptures, Herod's the only man that Jesus never answered. You say, well, well, why wouldn't Jesus talk to him? Why wouldn't he explain him the gospel? Why wouldn't he explain all these things? There he had a chance that he could win Herod over. Jesus knew his heart was hard. He knew he had no interest in, in dealing with that wounded conscience. He had in business, he had no interest in the truth of God. And so he wasted that opportunity. So our lesson here from Herod, when your conscience speaks to you, we need to deal with that. Because as we don't, what happens is our heart gets hardened and more and more and more so until eventually we just convince ourselves it's fine. The Bible talks about having a seared conscience. You know, if you burn yourself with a metal or like a branding iron or something, you burn it off, there's no feeling left. We can do that to our conscience too if we deny it long enough. So the lesson from Herod is act on your conscience when it's still speaking to you. So from there, we get down to verse 12, and in verse 13, it says, When Jesus heard of it, he departed thence by ship into a desert place. Now, I want to read, again, just for those of you who are perhaps interested, from the Mark accounts, just so that we would have a clear understanding of what happened here. And I think Brian pointed out this to me a few months ago. In Mark 6, just listen to these words. It says, When his disciples, that's John's, heard of it, they came and took his corpse and laid it in a tomb. And then the disciples gathered themselves together to Jesus and told him all things that were done. You see, the his followers, John's friends who buried him, that happened months ago. What we're reading now as we continue on in Matthew 14 to verse 13, when Jesus heard of it, it's not that he heard of John's death, it's that he heard about all the things that happened on their mission trip. And that was more clear, I thought, through Luke. And so that's why we read that one. Remember, they went out, did all these things in the land, Herod's like, wow, what's going on? It must be John. Matthew and Mark give us the backstory to explain why is it he thought maybe this was John. But now we're back in the present time. They have returned. They're explaining to Jesus how their mission trip went. And it's with that, let's read from verse 13 onward. So it says, Matthew 14 and verse 13. Maybe I'll get the slide there. My, my clicker is dead, Caleb, if you could just fence that. Thanks. Matthew 14, 13, when Jesus heard of it, he departed from there by a ship into a desert place. When the people heard about it, they followed him on foot out of all the cities. Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude 
and was moved with compassion towards them and healed their sick. When evening had come, his disciples came to him saying, this is a desert place, the time is far past, send the crowds away that they may go into the villages and buy for themselves food. But Jesus said to them, they don't need to leave. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we only have five loaves and two fishes. He said, bring them here to me. He commanded the multitude to sit down on the grass and took the five loaves and two fishes. Looking up to heaven, he blessed and he broke and he gave the loaves to his disciples and the disciples to the multitude. They did all eat and were filled. And they took up of the fragments that remained 12 baskets full. And they who had eaten were about 5,000 men, besides women and children. So this miracle here that's sometimes referred to as perhaps the feeding of the 5,000 or the feeding of the loaves. Again, if you're into trivia, it's the only miracle of the Lord Jesus recorded in its entirety in all four Gospels. So it's interesting. God's spirit is obviously telling us something. There's something very important for us to learn. I think it's far more important before we get to the what do we learn, let's figure out what actually happened, if you didn't pick that up. So they came back from the mission trip, remember, they're reporting all these things that happened. Jesus says, you know what? We've had a busy time. Let's go out into the desert place into the wilderness. Let's get some quiet. That was the vision anyway. Well, so much for that, because it said... Uh, people knew him and knew about the amazing things he was doing, and they followed him on foot. I love how the scriptures say that. They, they emphasize, though, there was significant cost and effort for these thousands and thousands of people just to follow him out in the wilderness. They said, wherever Jesus is, I want to be there. The other gospels fill in for us. He spent the entire day out in that sun, or presumably out in the sun, teaching and healing. What a day. And they get to the end of it, it's no surprise that the disciples are a bit exhausted. And it says, evening come, and uh, they see this crowd. Now, of course, up on the screen there, that's not a photo of the event. It's an artist's rendering. It's, I just find helpful, perhaps, to help us visualize what it may have been like. The thing I want us to see, first off, is that both the disciples and the Lord Jesus saw the same thing. They saw the crowd. But they saw different things in it. They all saw the people, but for the disciples, they saw a problem. They said, like, this is, this is crazy. We, they can't just stay here forever. He says, Lord, send them home. And their reaction to the problem was, remove the problem. Send them home. It's time. They've had a good day. They've been here all day. They've been healed. They've been taught. Let's call it a day. Let's relax. So Jesus, I love how the scriptures say, I'm even going to read from Mark's version, actually, because it says this. And that's the verse that I put up there on the screen, Mark 6. When Jesus saw the crowd, he was moved with compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. As he saw the crowd, he didn't see a, a problem in the sense that he needed to remove this, get it out of the way, look after myself, let's get a good night's rest. He saw the, the, the hopelessness of the crowd. Sheep without a shepherd, they no one to lead them, they no one to look after them. These people need something and i just appreciate that is the heart of our god that's god as he looks down at the world as he looks down at us he doesn't see us as a problem oh well i guess you, you pray too late in the day come see me in the morning it's nothing like that at all god has a limitless amount of time for anyone who's willing to see him that is the compassion of our god and so then the next thing like well what are we going to do and, and in john's gospel six there's a bit more of a discourse they talk about who's saying what like well what can we do uh, it would cost 200 denarii worth of food, almost a year's worth of, of wages. So whatever your salary is for the year, think 
Let's take that amount of money. Let's go buy food at the supermarket. Oh wait, they don't have that money and they don't have a supermarket. They're almost just talking out loud, like how ridiculous it is, Lord, that you're suggesting that we should feed these people. How could we possibly feed these people? Then the Lord said to them, well, what, what do you have? Don't talk to me about what you don't have. What do you have? And they said, well, there's a young lad here. Again, it's John's dad's dad. It wasn't even them that had it. There was a young boy that he's got five loaves of bread. And these wouldn't have been like monster loaves. It would have been pancake-type loaves. And two, and I love how, which uh, gospel was it? In John, it says two small fishes. Even adds that adjective, just so we would understand. These weren't like the biggest you've ever seen. There was nothing to Five loaves and two small fishes. That's what we have. Jesus says, bring them to me. And of course, it doesn't go into great detail to explain how this happened. This wasn't a physical phenomenon that happened. This was a miracle. Uh, I love how David Gooding, a commentator from the UK, was passed on, and he, he said it's like this. He said, this miracle showed the disciples that when God would establish his kingdom in the world, the kingdom of God to come is not simply us carrying on our current ministries in a more efficient or more caring manner, but rather it is the invasion of our world with powers from beyond, things that you can't even imagine. Uh, death will be overcome, sorrow, and all of these things uh, will be taken away when God establishes his kingdom in the world. Jesus isn't just saying, well, let's organize this better. No, he's doing miraculous things that are far beyond this world. It doesn't say how he did it. It just says he does. But what it does say, at the end of the day, they gathered it up, and there was 12 baskets left. This was a lesson for the disciples. They each had a basket they could look at. No one could deny this wasn't like sleight of hand or shell game or anything like that. They knew it was there in front of them. They could see it, touch it, feel it, eat it. He had done this miracle. He was trying to teach them something. To me, one of the big lessons from this was Jesus is not limited in any way by the physical. But yet, here's the cool thing to me. Jesus, could he not have just simply snapped his fingers and not even done that? Had the thought and provided food for them. Why even use the five loaves and two fishes to begin with? Why not just provide? He had done that before. In the Old Testament, he provided bread from heaven. Man, he just made it. It came. You see, the Lord Jesus and God, he doesn't need us, but he delights to use your and my meager resources to accomplish his purpose in the world. He wants you to partner with him to do the work. And he said, well, I don't have very much. You see, the point of this story is it's not about how much you have. It was never about how much you have. Anything you have, God does the work. God can multiply it, and he can do great things through it. It, it reminds me of in John chapter 11, you remember the story of Lazarus, a brother of Martha and Mary. He had passed on, and they, they end up out of the tomb. Everyone's devastated because they, they love Lazarus, and, and Jesus, it's recorded for us in John 11, he wept over the passing of Lazarus, which is phenomenal in itself. They, they take him out to the tomb, and, uh, and Jesus says to them, he's, he's about to raise Lazarus back to life. You don't know the story. But he says to them in the tomb, he says, you roll away the stone. Now remember, they would bury people not like we would today in the ground. This would be a cave, large stone in front of it. And he says, you roll away the stone. Now he's about to raise him back to life. Jesus could have obliterated that stone. He could have somehow hurled it into outer space with the power of God before. Why does he ask them, you roll away the stone? I remember someone pointed this out to me years ago, and I loved it. They reminded me of, of this here in Matthew 14. 
He says, what they could not do was bring a man back from death. That's God's realm. But he says, what they could do was roll away the stone. So he says, you keep rolling away the stones, and God will keep doing the miracles. Same here in Matthew 14. What they couldn't do was feed 5,000. What they did have was a meager amount of food. He says, you bring that and he'll do the work. You see, again, it's that partnership. God wants to work with us to accomplish his means in the world. That's an amazing thing. He doesn't need any one of us in this room, but yet he delights to use our bread and our fishes. This was a lesson for the disciples. It's not about the physical, um, but I want to do amazing things through what you have. But it was also a lesson for the crowd. I'll read uh, from John's account to pick up on this one. Again, you can just listen if you like, but it's just a continuation. So John 6, 14 says, The men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, they said, This is of a truth, that prophet who would come into the world. When Jesus therefore perceived they were going to come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed into a mountain all by himself. So what is that? So lesson for the disciples, they had the 12 baskets full of food, and so they could see it, fear, wow, Jesus can do anything through such small means. But the crowd, the 5,000 plus, also had a lesson that day, and it says, this is that prophet. Well, what prophet is that? What are they talking about? Well, they're likening back to what's recorded in our Bible in Deuteronomy chapter 18. It was a time when Moses was recounting to the people uh, the law. Deuteronomy means the second law giving. He was reminding to them before they would enter the promised land, this is all of God's laws. And he talks about a time, he said, you remember when God first spoke to us, when the law was given? Perhaps you've heard of the Ten Commandments, the tablets, the stone. Well, they were given on a mountain called Mount Sinai, or Horeb. But you read about the giving of the law, it was lightning, and it was storms, like far exceeding whatever we saw yesterday. It was it was loud voices heard. The people were terrified as God was giving the laws. They were gathering around the bottom of this mountain. And so much so, the people said in Deuteronomy 18, God, we don't want you to speak to us like this anymore. Let me read the exact words for it. It said, Let me not hear again the voice of my Lord. Neither let me see this great fire anymore, lest I die. You know, if you're in God's shoes, if I could use that expression, you might be thinking, like, the people should just be grateful that they experienced my presence, that I spoke to them in this way, they got the law. And here they are, they're complaining again, no, 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 it's too much, don't do that anymore. If I were, again, in God's shoes, I'd say, you know, I've had enough of you and you're complaining, but God's reply is remarkable. Here's what he said when they complained. He said, the Lord said, the people have well spoken what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet from among their brethren, like unto thee. I will put my words in his mouth, and he will speak unto them all that I command him. In other words, it says, the next time I speak to this world, it's not going to be fire and lightning and thunder and a large mountain. He says, I'm going to raise up for them someone who looks just like them. It'll be my words through his mouth. It will be the Son of God here on this world. That's how we learn about what God is. You don't have to just imagine what God is like. We look at him facing the crowd, and as you see it up on the screen there, and it says he was moved with compassion. We see the heart of God. That's how he sees you and I. We understand what God is like through the person, Jesus Christ. He said, you know, the people are right. That's how I'm going to speak next time. So he says, I'm going to send a prophet someday. So here the people are, John 6, 14. He says, this must 
be him. This is the prophet that God would send. God's word, God's works, God's power through what looks just like a man, Jesus Christ. And they were so excited, they said, okay, he's king. Let's put him on the throne right now. Let's take Herod, get rid of him. Take Pilate, get rid of him. Because remember, they're, they're under oppression. Uh, the land of Israel is not a free land at this time. Rome's in a charge. So let's, let's get rid of him. Jesus is king. Who could stop Jesus? And they tried to take him by force. It says, and that's what I read in John 16, when Jesus perceived that, he departed into the mountain alone. Why would he do that? Like, wouldn't it be great in power? Because that is not why he came. He didn't come to be the prime minister of a land in the Middle East when he came at that time. He came to teach us God's way, to reveal to us God's truth, but even more importantly that, to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He would lay down his life so that there could be salvation and forgiveness. You believe, believe me, he will come back again, and he will one day establish his kingdom of the world, and he will be king of kings and lord of lords. But that wasn't what he came for at that time. This was not, as he so often said, my time is not yet come. So back in Matthew 14, I'll get you to advance it again there for me, Caleb, if you don't mind. We come to the last phase of our chapter, walking on water. So it says in Matthew 14, verse 22, straightway Jesus constrained his disciples to get into the ship and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. As we just learned from John's account, they were, there was people who recognized, wow, this is the prophet, we're trying to make him king, and Jesus is downplaying that, sends them away, and he departs to pray. No doubt the people were disappointed. They were hoping that this man, Jesus, would be the king, but you know who else is probably disappointed? disciples because they didn't fully understand why jesus was there either they just they were his followers they were his friends but for a lot of things they were as much in the dark as anyone else and the scriptures reveal that to us so i'm sure they would have been excited he said okay this is king let's overthrow rome let's go and they're thinking like why why did he say no and now he's gone in a mountain and he tells us get in the boat and go across the other side okay i guess you will but you can imagine put yourself into the story there would be some either this puzzle thing in your head, like, what's going on? Why didn't he let it be king? This would have been the time. They get in the ship to go to the other side, just like he says. They listen well. Fortunately, unfortunately for them, a large storm would soon await them. And uh, again, probably far beyond what we experienced yesterday, or maybe it was something similar. But if you were in a small, uh, small boat out in the sea in the midst of a storm like that, you can imagine how terrifying that would be. So let, let's read a few verses here and we'll pause again. So Jesus told them to go the other side while he went up and sent the multitudes away. Matthew 14, 23. He sent the multitudes away. He went up into a mountain apart to pray. When the evening was come, he was there alone. But the ship, verse 24, was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. So they're out in the midst of this small boat again. Obviously not a photo, but just a, an image that perhaps you could get the picture. Small boat out in the midst of the sea, see nothing but land, storm, like you can imagine how terrifying that would be. If you recall, if you have a good memory, about a month ago or six weeks ago, the disciples found themselves in a similar state back in Matthew 8. There they were in a boat on the Sea of Galilee and a large storm rose up. But there was one big difference. Let me read it for you. In Matthew 8, it says, uh, they end. When he was entered into the ship, the disciples followed him. Behold, there arose a great tempest in the sea. Those two letters make a great deal of difference. 
he was in the ship. Jesus is with them. And even though they were terrified, finally they woke him up. Just remember he was sleeping and, and he calmed the storm. And it's a lot better to go through a storm like that when Jesus is in the boat. Now they don't even know where Jesus is. They're alone in the boat this time, or at least they thought they were, until we read now in verse 25. It was the fourth watch of the night. With military background, perhaps you know what that means. If you, if you break up the day, that their days would end at 6 p.m. and begin at 6 a.m. That was just the time scale they worked on. So you take that 12-hour interval, break it up into fours, each one three, first, second, third watch, it would have been like if you were out of patrol duty, you had responsibility for a watch. So the fourth watch of the night would be kind of 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. So maybe the sun's about to go up, but it's, it's dark. It's the middle of the night. So that's when they're out there on this boat. Fourth watch of the night. Jesus went unto them walking on the sea. And uh, from Mark's account, I want to read this because it blows my mind. Mark 6.48 says, walking upon the sea, and he made as if he would have passed by them. It's not meant to say, like, oh, he's ignoring them. He's just going across to the other side. But get the picture. They can barely keep the boat upright. He is not only walking on the water, he is walking at such a pace that it's as if the storm doesn't even touch him. He is so far beyond the powers of nature and so on. Like, he's just literally walking headlong through this storm on top of the water. You can imagine your reaction is probably similar to the disciples. Verse 26, the disciples saw him walking on the sea. They were terrified. They said, it's a spirit or a ghost. They cried out for fear. Straightway, Jesus spoke to them, saying, be of good cheer. It is I. Be not afraid. Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it's you, bid me to come unto you on the water. In other words, if it's really you, you tell me to come out there with you. And he said, verse 29, come. So when Peter had come down out of the ship, he walked on the water. Don't miss that. Peter walked on the water to get Jesus. But when he saw the winds were boisterous, he was afraid and he began to sink. He cried out saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand, caught him, said, oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? Heard people focus on the last part. Throw that part out for a minute. Jesus, but Peter stepped out of the boat. If this wasn't Jesus, if this was an apparition, if this was a ghost or something, he's fallen like a stone to the bottom, and that's it. He stepped out of the boat. Would you? Would you have stepped out of the boat? With a lot of faith. Let's not, let's not throw stones at him. That boy, his faith faltered at the end and he started to sink. He stepped out, and it says he walked on the water. Other Gospels talk about this account. Only Matthews mentions this about Peter. I think for me... The lesson, the amazing lesson here is that not only does Jesus, as we learned from the lows, want to do great miracles through what we have. He's not limited by the physical. He wants to do great miracles through us. Peter walked on the water, not just Jesus. He made Peter walk on the water. Didn't even have the loaves and fishes, but he could do that miraculous work in him by faith. Not only does Jesus want to use our stuff, if I could put it that way, to, to serve him, he wants to use us. There's literally no limitation to serving Jesus Christ. You can't say, well, it's because I don't have this, that, X, Y, Z, whatever. He can do anything through us. Now, did they learn the lesson? I want to read over again from Mark's account as we get close to wrapping this one up. It says, be a good cheer, whatever. Mark 6, 51. He went unto them in the ship. The wind ceased. They were amazed in themselves beyond measure. And they wondered, Mark 6, 52, because they considered not 
the miracle of the loaves because their heart was hardened. See, that is the one indication of scriptures that links these two together. The miracle of the loaves was intended to teach them a lesson that didn't hit home. And so this was building on top of these. That's why he did this, because they didn't understand the miracle of the loaves. You say, well, they must have got it by then. Well, let's go ahead and mark eight. He's talking to them again about the teaching of the Pharisees and the teaching of Herod. And he uses the word leaven or yeast. And that was the word that he would often use for false teaching. Because if you think about how leaven or yeast does its job, it, it gets hidden inside something like your loaf of bread, and it decays, it rots. That's how it makes things blow up, it makes the bubbles, and makes your bread go from 2D to 3D. So that's a good thing. But Jesus uses leaven or yeast to speak of a false teaching. And uh, they, it says they reasoned among themselves, oh, he's talking to us about this because we have no bread. Jesus knew it. He said, why do you reason among yourselves you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Is your heart still hardened? When I broke the five loaves among the 5,000, how many baskets did you have? Twelve. When the seven among the 4,000, how many baskets did you have? Seven. Just how is it that you do not understand? In other words, it's never about the bread. It's never about the physical. It's never about what we have or what we don't have when it comes to serving Jesus. The lesson was he can take anything. And serve. And they were still thinking, like, boy, it's because we don't have bread, or not enough bread. Don't worry about the bread. Jesus can bring the bread. Whatever you have, he can use, including ourselves. And that's what they were supposed to learn from the second miracle. I can do these things even through you. Last lesson before we wrap it up here. Did you notice how their reaction was a little different in Mark 8 when they were on the sea? And Mark or Matthew 8, rather, and Matthew 14 here when they were on the sea. Before, how did the storm stop? It says Jesus woke up, he spoke to the storm. And he said, peace be still, and immediately was calm. Like an amazing thing. Even nature obeyed him. This time, he didn't speak first to the storm. He spoke to the disciple. He said, don't be afraid. Again, someone pointed this out to me. I'm passing it along out of the treasury of, of God's truth. But... When you're going through a storm in life, and maybe you can even relate to that now, sometimes I think our heart would be that the storm would be taken away, that Jesus would speak to the storm and make it go away. But the lesson here, perhaps in one way, is that sometimes he speaks to the storm away. But sometimes he speaks to the disciple. Mom, don't be afraid. We're going to go through the storm, but I'm with you. And so let's be encouraged by that. Yet why isn't the storm going on? Maybe that's one of the times where he's speaking to the disciple and not to the storm. He's trying to show us something through the storm. So uh, maybe, Caleb, if you could uh, go to the last slide there. Just for those who like uh, wrap-ups, uh, one more time, please. The lessons that I took away from this passage in Matthew 14, there's probably a hundred more we could list. Here's the ones that spoke to me. Herod had his awakened conscience. Remember, he hears about this thing going on and immediately he jumps to the seemingly preposterous idea that John, who he beheaded, it must be John. Well, why would he think of something so ridiculous unless it was burning inside? You see, sometimes that can be for us. There's something that has happened years ago in your life, and you think you've moved on, you've buried it, no one's going to know, and then you hear or you read or you see something, and it all immediately floods back. You know why? Because it's still there. You just buried it. You hardened your heart and tried to pretend it wasn't there. We need to confront these things. When your conscience is awake and say, boy, I've done something wrong, you might need to reconcile with someone, if you can, but ultimately you need to reconcile with God. Explain to him and ask him for forgiveness. And through Jesus Christ, we can have forgiveness. Herod had that opportunity to, he had an audience with Jesus, and he wasted it away.
Next bullet, please. So when we just talked about in the midst of a storm, sometimes it comes the storm, sometimes it comes the disciple. And I'm really encouraged by that. I think of some of the storms in my life where I just wished it would have gone away. Jesus walked with me through every step. There's just miracles and awesome things that happen. And sometimes we're meant to go through the storm and he's there with us, even walking on the water. And with us walking on the water, doing things you couldn't even believe, if that's what needs to be. Next bullet, please. Uh, this is from the Globes. God delights to use, but is not limited by our meager resources. He doesn't need us. Let, let's not think highly of ourselves that, boy, I'm kind of a big deal and God needs me to accomplish this well. Not even close. But he wants to. That's the amazing thing. He wants to partner with us to do as well. Okay, next one. Empowered by faith. Not only does he want to use our stuff, and you can hit the last one too if you don't want to kill it. But God not only wants to use, again, in quotes, our stuff whatever meager resources we have in our possession or on our person. He wants to use us. He multiplied loaves and fishes to do a miracle of, of carving on power, but he also allowed Peter to walk on water. It wasn't just Jesus walking on water. So not only using our stuff, but using us. By faith, Jesus wants to accomplish as well. That's he was trying to teach some lessons to the disciples. I don't know that we would have got the answer any more clearly than they would have. Hopefully today, having considered it again, we can understand that God wants our help to serve him in this way. Let's pray. Father God, your word is powerful and rich, and may we take nothing else to today that A, Jesus Christ is absolutely amazing. They fell and worshipped him after these miracles, and they, even not even understanding what had gone on, they said something amazing has happened here. The power that they've witnessed, that we witness it, we read it here. Thank you for recording it for us. Lord, thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ. We don't really fully understand, but we know this that you want to accomplish your means in the world and you want to partner with us to do it. We want to be followers of Jesus Christ. Give us the grace to do that, to offer up what little we have. And it's not about how much we have. You do the work, you do the miracles, you do all that, but you want to partner with us and in us to accomplish that in the world. Give us the boldness to step out of the boat like Peter. Step out of our comfort zone to serve you. And, and you can allow us to, as it were, walk on water as well. Give us grace as we go from this place. Uh, impress upon our hearts what we need to hear. Awaken our conscience if we need to. That's why you recorded the, the account of that wicked man, Herod. Lord, may we deal with those things today for the glory and honor and for the sake of the person of our Savior, the Lord Jesus.